This is a little peculiar, isn't it, friend? I wonder who lived here in this room. There is a small bed in the corner, but most of the room is covered in these model trains. Uh, hello. Who are you? Hello, sir. My name is Jimmy, and this is- What are you doing here? How much do you know about what's going on in this mansion? I stay out of it. Ever since the butler murdered me, I've stayed away from the others. I've been fine in my solitude. I was the driver for the Mortain family. My, my name is Brian. Well, it is nice to meet you, Brian. We are witnessing stories that are somehow connected to this whole thing. We are going to take down Malik. No, I don't think that is possible. Look at all the people he has murdered. With the help of the spirits of this place, we can do it. Will you help us? I... I am sorry. But I mustn't. I cannot. I would, however, ask a favor of you, if I may. Sure. My remains are over there in that cupboard. Do not be shocked at my predicament. Malik hung me upside down in the closet and... and slit my throat. That is horrible. We can assist you. If that is what you want. It is. One hundred years lingering is enough, I think. I can feel myself going mad in isolation. Please, if you would be so kind. Just know, Brian, we will stop him from doing this to anyone else. I hope you do. And thank you for releasing me. this out before we burn the entire place down and all these spirits will be trapped here forever. Thank you for your help friend. That small model train is glowing. Perhaps it is the next tale that we must witness. The Commuter, written by Meg Smith, narrated by Georgia Cook.
The sky took on the grey colour of winter. Winter denuded of seasonal festivities, with only a persistent damp and cold. Moira did not mind. She was on her way to meet an attorney in Boston to deliberate a strategy. Just a few months earlier, she and Mark had been planning their wedding and a fund for their son, Jeremy. Now, Mark was buried. His parents' decision, although Mark explicitly said while he was in hospital that he wanted cremation. Moira was headed to an attorney's office in Boston in her battle with Mark's family over Mark's few assets, including money he intended to set aside with Moira for their son, Jeremy, who was in first grade. Her coat did not fully insulate her from the chill. She and Jeremy lived in a box-like apartment complex, sequestered from the classic colonial and Victorian-era houses that predominated their town. Because her car was not roadworthy, and because she could not afford to have it fixed, she was at the commuter rail station. Thankfully, the station was a short walk from her apartment, and, like her apartment complex, sequestered from the elegance of a distant time. True to form, her phone had died. Widow's brain, a friend had said. You forget everything. I kept leaving my key at Duncan's for a month. In her rush to get ready, she'd neglected to charge it, and she had spent its remaining reserve trying to chat with Jeremy. In the throes of a pandemic, he was doing his first grade lessons remotely, and so she had sent him to live with her parents in her hometown. They could care for him better while she fought for their financial security. But in truth... She considered that the precious chat was not worth the drain on her phone's battery. She saw clearly that Jeremy had neatly acclimated to life with his grandparents. His grandmother had to coax him to look at the screen and greet his mother. Her parents could provide him with more than she could, and she was glad they were willing to take him. Of course he misses you, her mother had assured her, as Jeremy ambled off as his grandfather called him from the next room. He can stay as long as he needs. In fact... We were thinking. Staying in one place is probably the best thing for him right now. Her mother did not say, Just come stay with us until you get things sorted. And Moira did not ask. He was adapting to her solitude. And that fact both assured and saddened her. But even now, standing on the platform, amid high, unkept grass and weeds, he felt a peculiar solace. He was nearly alone. It made sense. In this small town, the train stop was a kind of formality, and it was past the rush time, if such a thing existed on this commuter line. An in-person meeting with the attorney probably wasn't strictly necessary, and she wasn't eager for it. She'd consulted with this attorney, recommended by her widow brain friend, in a video conference. What he had said made sense, and she felt confidence in his expertise. But he seemed to have a lot of ticks including waving his left hand frantically in a motion that reminded her of a moth that had gotten trapped inside on a summer evening. Trip into Boston was as much about a momentary escape, stepping out into the beautiful and mysterious city, and maybe spending some time at the waterfront. As she waited, she began to wonder if perhaps she had gotten the time wrong, and with her dead phone, she couldn't check. Digital screen that flashed messages, delays, and so on, and the time... But it wasn't flashing. It was frozen. And no one was in a hurry to come out to that far-flung stop to fix it. There was only one other person on the platform. A man in a grey coat, looking away. 
Well, if there's one other person here, then we're either both way off or both right on schedule. Here was someone who wasn't embroiled in her life's battles, standing serenely apart from them. For that reason, she suddenly craved contact, even just to hear the correct time. She was wearing a mask, like most people these days, and her voice came out muffled. He turned to face her. <sighs> That's some mask, she said aloud before she could stop herself. It was all right. The man had cold blue eyes and a crop of black hair battered by the wind. His mask appeared to show all the flesh on his face under his nose, simply torn away, his bare gums and a mouth full of shark-like teeth. He started to answer her, and she realised it was no mask. Don't be embarrassed, he assured her. It happens sometimes. I am so sorry, Moira said. I really am. Don't be he said. How strangely clear his words were, and the pleasantness of his voice added to her shock. You're not hallucinating, he said. You're seeing what you're seeing, he chuckled mildly, and the sound was not comforting. He looked to his side. A woman was approaching the platform, the cross-looking child about four years old, but the woman and her surly little charge took no notice of them. Maybe they can't see him, Moira thought. Or, more likely, the woman is encouraging a game of let's pretend we don't see. I take this train every day, he said. Mora started to turn away, deciding she really didn't want to know who or what this person was, or why he was standing there on the same train platform, and that maybe she should just go home, charge her phone, call the attorney to change the appointment, and go back to bed. Maybe eat some instant chocolate pudding, which she had bought for her son, but which sat in the fridge, uneaten, and cut short this messed up day. Sorry, sorry, he said. I didn't mean to freak you out. No, you're good, she said. But put on a mask. We're in a pandemic and my husband died from it. The child was pointing in their direction, and the woman lightly touched the child's hand, gesturing to put it down. Moira wondered if the child was looking at the man with the half-laid face, or at her, a crazy lady talking with a man with a half-laid face no one else could see. Either way, she did not want to be standing next to a guy with half a skinner's face, and she damn well didn't want to be the only person who could actually see him. I took on this form to protect myself, he said. I didn't do a bang-up job of it, as you can see, but it suits my purpose. I ride the train every day and I get on and off at different stops. Uh-huh, Moira said, glancing along the railroad tracks to the place where they seem to disappear into space and time. It's none of my business. Some people can't wear masks, and I get it. My name is Breyer, the man continued. I take this train every day to Boston, but I live for what I see on the journey. Places the train passes, backyards, piles of discarded wood, stacks of railroad ties. Life and death begins here. Well, like I said, none of my business, Moira said. She nodded and began to move back to her original place on the platform. Freya did not pursue the conversation. When the train arrived, she decided, she'd make a point of sitting in a different car from this Breya person. She'd go to the attorney's office in Boston, ignore the fluttering of hands, and take a walk to the waterfront, as she'd planned. 
one thing that would not happen. She would not be drawn into some strange world inhabited by strange people, just because her own world was slipping away. The train was snaking into view, in its deliberate pace, with lights flashing off and on and a bell clanging. The child with the woman started running in place and making a barking sound, like a small chihuahua. When the train pulled up to the platform, the woman stepped quickly aboard, and Moira realised that she was still playing the game of pretending. Adults do a lot of pretending, she mused, as she stepped aboard the train, moving quickly down the aisle and into the next car. There were plenty of open seats, and she settled into one, feeling a surge of relief. Brer was nowhere in sight, but she heard a friendly exchange, a voice she was sure was his, and another man, perhaps a conductor. Laughter punctuated their words. After a few minutes, the train began to move, and a conductor shouted the name of the next town on the line. Louder than necessary, she thought. The phone was dead, and she'd forgotten the book she intended to bring. She glanced around. Sometimes passengers left behind newspapers, but she saw none. She found herself looking out the window, into backyards, straggling woods and piles of debris. All the things Brea described. As the train approached the next stop, the conductor shouted the name of the town again, just as loudly as before. Just before the train reached the stop, Maura saw a doll, discarded, in a doll's chair on the bank of a dark, marshy bog. The sight startled and saddened her. She thought fleetingly of getting off the train there, to climb over the rocks and dead wood to the place where the doll lay. If she did that, of course, you'd miss her appointment. I will get off at this stop on the way back, Moira decided. When the train arrived at North Station in Boston, Moira got on the green line of the subway, getting off at the Boston Street stop. The attorney's office was not in one of the elegant buildings of stone and sculpture on the Boston skyline. It was over an all-night market, and some kids were playing jumping rope outside. But despite the office's appearance, Moira found the attorney gracious and astute. He did not cast about or twitch as he had in the video conference. He wore a Superman mask and said his daughter got it for him as a birthday present. He did not ask his daughter's age. The thought of parenthood would fill her with a deep ache and she wanted to stay steely and sharp. Together, Moira and the attorney settled on a strategy. He asked for some documents. Moira assured him she could send them by email. She left the appointment with a sense of calm and clarity she had not felt since her last conversation with Mark. On a phone, because hospital visitors were not allowed. But instead of heading to the waterfront, as she had planned, she headed back to the subway and back to North Station for the return home. While on the subway platform, she saw a vendor with a rack of brightly coloured scarves. On impulse, she bought one. Then another. Before getting on the train for North Station, she gave the second scarf to a man in a wheelchair who was playing a Christmas song on a harmonica. The early winter darkness had moved in, and she was reconsidering her plans for rescuing the doll. She was wearing office visit shoes, not footwear fit for stumbling through weedy growth that marked the lip of the bog. She saw what appeared to be a child, a small child, sitting by itself on a train seat. She shook her head and saw it was the doll. Moira went over to it, it was the doll, sitting in its doll seat, as she had seen it on the edge of the bog. The doll and the chair were a little grimy, but someone had made the effort to clean it. Someone had gotten off of that stop and retrieved the doll. 
It surely did not get there on its own power, she mused to herself. Was it Freya? Did he see the doll while staring out the window into strange backyards, looking for life and death? The doll's face and hands appeared slightly grey, with long, stiff lashes on its eyes, which opened and closed with a slight creak. Moira placed the doll in its seat and on her lap. She took her new scarf from around her neck and spread it over the doll. It seemed certain Brer had either left the doll for her to find, or taken it onto the train and then forgot it. Either way, she thought resolutely, I no longer owe anything to anyone. As the train began to move, she thought she saw Brea reflected in the glass, as if standing in the aisle and staring at her. She looked up, however, and saw only a man sniffing the air wistfully, as if someone had a delicious hot cocoa or a bag of popcorn. He pulled out his phone and then moved along, as if drawn by the aroma, or by a memory. You've been listening to the Night's End podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. The Commuter was written by Meg Smith, who lives in Lowell, Massachusetts. A short fiction collection, The Plague Confessor, is available on Amazon. To connect with Meg, why not check her out on Twitter at MegSmith underscore Rider, or on Facebook at MegSmithRider, or you can visit her website at MegSmithRider.com. This episode was narrated by Georgia Cook. Georgia is a writer, illustrator, and voiceover artist from London. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website at www.georgiacookwriter.com. Jimmy Horrors and Brian were performed by James Barnett. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. If you aren't already aware, The Night Send has released a horror-themed apparel line called Stay Horrific. There you can find horror-themed t-shirts, mugs, dresses, socks, all the good stuff. Why not go and check it out now at stayhorrific.com. And as always, stay horrific everyone. <laughs>